Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It is episode 215. We're recording this live on August 19th, 2021. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by another uh, another male here, uh, Mr. Blake Arnstorf. <laughs> Hey there, Nick. <laughs> it's good to see you. Starting it off at the top, man. Hey, it's good to see you too, Blake. Uh, before we get into things tonight, I just want to mention a community update uh, here for the Human Factors Cast community. Really, there's a we are always taking applications or whatever you want to call them. They're not really applications, but uh, if if you want to get involved with the show, there's a way to do that in a pretty powerful way that might improve your resume, portfolio, anything like that. And we'll actually talk about it a little later for how to build some of those portfolio things in the It Came From section. But we do uh, are always looking for more people to join our digital media lab. Um, and I don't think I ever really officially welcomed Mateo to the lab, but uh, longtime listeners of the show know Mateo by name. He's been on here for a couple of recaps. He's in the lab now, uh, and he's working on some stuff that hopefully we'll have out to you soon. Um, but if you are interested in joining the lab and working on some fun things behind the scenes, we always have stuff cooking up over here uh, that you can use to boost your portfolio. You know, let us know. Any of our social channels, it's always a good way to reach us. Um, but we know why you all are here, and you're here for. Yes, that's right. It's Human Factors News. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you a news story, all from the related field of human factors. Uh, and our patrons choose this. This could be anything from medical, privacy, security, robotics, you name it. As long as it relates to the field of human factors, uh, we can talk about it. Blake, what do we got up this week? Up this week, we're talking more about just a study that's come out from NYU titled Women, Early Career Academics More Likely to Feel Like Imposters in Disciplines That Prize Brilliance. So researchers from NYU have published a paper based on survey results indicating, indicating the no, that a more an academic discipline is perceived to require raw talent or brilliance for success, the more both women and early career academics feel professionally inadequate or they feel like imposters. The results, which appear in the Journal of Education Psychology, were especially pronounced among women from racial backgrounds and ethnic groups uh, that were traditionally upper, underrepresented in higher education and academia specifically. The researchers stressed that while imposter phenomenon is often understood and portrayed as an individual affliction, the findings here illustrate that instead of imposter experience is might be a function of context that academics can actually understand and try and navigate. So in addition, regardless of gender, career stage, race, or ethnicity, academics who reported more intense imposter feelings also reported feeling less belonging in their field, the sense that they felt like they were less connected or accepted by colleagues. And this less lessening in confidence uh, kind of impacted their ability to feel like they would succeed in the field. So this is a pretty heavy topic for us to talk about in general. Uh, it's always great to see that this kind of stuff is being researched and looked at and interesting from the objective scientific perspective. Uh, but let's kind of break this down for everybody. You want yeah. to kick it off for us? Yeah. Can we do a heavy disclaimer at the top here? We realize uh, that we are two men breaking down the issues that impact women, and we are sensitive to that. Uh, we were early career professionals at one point, so we can talk from that perspective. But do know that we did do our due diligence, and we tried to uh, reach out to several people that we know can be on the show. And... Um, we, we tried. We tried, everybody. But we do have some social thoughts that we're going to get to here in a little bit. Uh, we'll, we'll be able to bring in some of those stories, at least to get that perspective. So, um, yes, let's break this down. And before so think, you jump in, Dick, real yeah. quick, like also too, this is an episode where, like Nick said, we're talking about something that we don't have direct experience with outside of being early career professionals. But something I would encourage anybody to do that's listening to this and maybe has this experience is reach out and let us know about it through either on YouTube, wherever you may hear the podcast or see the podcast. Because uh, we do want the platform to be something that we can use to help, you know, I don't know, 
either be a platform people can talk about this kind of stuff or, you know, help others kind of figure out ways around it. Um, but anyway, Nick, take away. Yeah. yeah, if you're watching live too, drop it in chat like uh, Kristen just did. Um, we'll get to your comment in just a second. So, yes, I think this is um, – this we've talked about imposter syndrome a lot on the show, but it normally comes in the sense of it came from segments. And this is the first time we're really seeing it uh, in a story format. And I don't know why that is. It might be our selection process. It might be the fact that we've shifted it over to our patrons and now they want to hear about this. And that's fine. I'm just surprised that we haven't actually talked about it in this type of setting before. So I think, um, you know, we should probably start at the top of what imposter syndrome is, right? I think let's operationally define it up front. So that way, as we talk about this, we all have a common understanding, right? So imposter syndrome is basically feeling like you are not adequate, uh, that you are... Uh, here, the the operational definition for the study is a feeling of intellectual inad- inadequacy, despite evidence of competence and success, is manifested in. Uh, or sorry, that's that's the uh, explanation here, but that's that's kind of the bit that is important, right? A feeling of inadequacy, intellectual inadequacy, despite evidence of competence or success. Um. Yeah, that's that's where I want to start. Blake, have you ever felt imposter syndrome? Let's start there. Have yeah, I mean, we've talked about this a bunch, and and again, it does often come in the later portion of the show and in, it, in the it came from section. But yeah, I think it's it's kind of, especially early career, it doesn't surprise me that a lot of people feel that way. I mean, Nick and I have had conversations both on and off the podcast. Like, I feel like that all the time. I don't think I've ever truly gotten over the idea that I am, I am adequate for the job that I'm doing, uh, and that's, you know is what it is because there's definitely i've i've seen evidence of you know my success or whatever it may be but for me it's often been like a driving marker and i feel like for a lot of people in academia or people that you know work in stem fields that can be something that they're continually chasing like what's the next thing that i can learn or what's the next kind of like marker that shows that i'm continually being successful so i I think it often becomes like a almost like a mechanism you use to drive yourself, but in some ways it can have, you know, detrimental benefits if you don't feel like you're ever going to be successful in your field or, or you don't feel like you're respected by your colleagues. Um, so there definitely can be, you know, two sides to the imposter syndrome coin. But Nick, have you really come across this before? I mean, is this something you felt in your early career? How did you get over it? Personally, yeah, and I think we answered it on the on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. I started a podcast because I felt like I couldn't, uh, I think it was actually last week. There's a there's a really great question, um, and I can't remember exactly what the question was, but I do remember that uh, there was this massive feeling of incompetence uh, on my part when um, compared to some of the other individuals that I was working with at the time because I felt like they were brilliant, and we will get to what brilliance is here in a minute. It's it's a little hard to define, but I think we I think we got it. Uh, and so, yes, when you think about imposter syndrome, yes, I've experienced it, uh, especially in my early career, feeling a little bit better now, um, even in new positions that I take, I feel like that goes away. Uh, but again, we're both male. Uh, we're, bo- we're both men. We're, we're both um, white dudes. So, I mean, like, you know, I, I feel like race and um, ethnicity could have another big impact on this as well. I think they actually highlight this in another study that they did as well uh, from July of last year. Again, we can talk about that. But uh, yeah, huge disclaimer. This is two white dudes talking about our experience. Um, let's, Blake, do you want to break down this study and, and talk about actually how they got this result? Yeah, so let's break this down a little bit. Like I mentioned at the top, this was really focused on kind of survey responses from a large net of people. So we're looking at 5,000 academics, uh, like different levels of faculty in terms of it within academia, Um, even like postdocs, medical residents. So you're getting a wide array of different fields, but like likely all related very much to STEM fields. So very science, tech and math, all that kind of good stuff. Um, And so really what the survey was focused on was asking people to rate their level of experience of imposter syndrome. So this, like going back to the top, uh, for example, 
here. Sometimes I feel like I'm afraid others will discover how much knowledge or ability I really lack. I feel like I ask myself that question all the time. Um, and then to compound that to really get at the brilliant side of things, which Nick and I had an interesting conversation before the show started about kind of trying to figure out how to define what brilliance is. But the way that the survey tackled it is they're looking at the field as a whole that the person works in. So the medical field, you know, aviation, whatever it may be, or whatever they're focused on in academia. Uh, there that field's brilliance orientation so how that's measured so personally i feel that being on top of a a top scholar in my discipline of choice requires a special aptitude that just can't be taught so something you feel like is much more innate it's not necessarily something you're going to gain through training experience anything like that so these two things are pretty powerful markers like i one i don't feel adequate and two i don't feel like i can become adequate because it's not something that i can just learn um, so that's really where the focus was here was answering a bunch of these survey questions really focused on these two kind of polar ideas and seeing from overall, they found that most people were, that were in a field that they, they themselves were perceived required raw talent or a lot of brilliance to be successful in, um, more often, women in an early career academics actually saw that they felt like they were definitely imposters or they were reporting that they felt that way uh, more so than maybe men who were, you know, later in their career or people who were not in their early career. Yeah, I think that's a great breakdown of it. And you're right. We did have an interesting discussion of what brilliance is. Um, and so I just, I don't know how to approach this, from a systematic perspective, right? It's obviously a societal thing where um, historically women have been marginalized to men uh, and people of color have been marginalized. And I think a lot of that historical aspect, at least in Western industrialized cultures, uh, have a huge impact on how they perceive their worth especially in a work environment because if you think about it you know not even what it's like 70 years ago or something women weren't commonplace in the workplace it was still like you know we're, we're still coming around on that even today with equal pay and really equal treatment um and so we have these lasting effects from history that are now playing uh that are now having an impact on on the way that people not only uh, not only how other people perceive them, but how they perceive themselves with this imposter phenomenon, right? So there's a lot to break down here. I think um, I think I want to jump into brilliance a little bit more because there's another study that came out of uh, the same lab, I think, that looked at uh, basically race and ethnicity and how that was affected by brilliance as well. Um and they they did this they used this method called the implicit association test uh where um you know we're we're looking at ma male female uh brilliant we're looking at terms right measure it, so this test kind of overlaps the degree between these concepts um without explicitly asking them whether or not they hold stereotype views so it's it's important to mention that this is kind of to get at those stereotypes um it's basically a speed sorting task, right? So so they're looking at these stimuli, such as a picture of a woman or the word brilliant on a computer screen. They're asked them to sort them into two different categories. Uh, and then, you know, they, they were basically um, counter counterbalanced with uh, male or female coming first or other words coming first and all that stuff. Basically, uh, you know, the, the logic here is that if brilliant is more associated with male than with female in people's minds, then participants will be faster to sort that stimuli when brilliant and male come up on the screen as opposed to uh, the same response key um, or, or as opposed to female and brilliant um, because they just go together. Uh, and I'm doing that in air quotes for those listening. So um, basically... You know, they, they have this study that's came out that's come out and it's actually a series of five studies here. Um, they're looking at girls and boys age nine and ten. 
uh, men and women from 78 other countries. And what's been consistent uh, across all these demographics is that there's an implicit stereotype associating brilliance with men more than women. Um, And it's not just that there's a stereotype to begin with. It's that the magnitude uh, is, is large as well. So it was similar in strength to the implicit stereotype that associates men more than women with careers, which was uh, basically another study that they did. So, um, and women, basically, the, the, if you think about the pairing, right, men, careers, women, family, that would be the pairing. And it's that same strength, men, brilliance. Uh, versus women brilliance. So there is some implicit stereotyping when you think about the word brilliant. Um, and this is this is all historical study leading up to this one that we're talking about today about imposter syndrome. So this is kind of the next step. Um, you know, thinking about there's precedent here for thinking that men are more brilliant as a stereotype. And now, um, you know, you have added on to that how do you feel about your discipline requiring a special aptitude that just can't be taught? And that's how they operationally define brilliance in this in this example. Uh, and it turns out, surprise, surprise, women who, again, from previous studies, uh, were stereotyped to not be paired with brilliant, uh, felt like they didn't feel like they were a part of it. So that's kind of the history behind it. I'm going to pause there, Blake, anything I missed. No, I don't think you missed anything. I think what is interesting about the study is we're using a lot of like implicit understanding of people's previous experience and how they're kind of mapping that uh, to to either what they experience in the world or, you know, how they would do something with a task and then extrapolating um, interesting findings based off of something that's not specific supposedly directly related hence the implicit tasking uh but i'd like the the study or i guess i like the intent of this particular analysis that's been done for this research study mainly because of the the finding that hey this is some kind of issue that we're that people experience across you know women regardless of ethnicity or gender or sorry ethnicity or race what can we really do? That's kind of the next thing that the researchers are really looking at is like, what does that mean for an academic to have to navigate this? And are there effective strategies people can use to do so? Um, because like academic, the academic world is a tough world to be in. Um, I, I would be really interested to know how this compares in the tech world. Um, and if there is the same level of, you know, discrepancy between men and women or not, I'm not really sure what the outcome would be. Uh, but this is a, it's a, it's cool to see the history of where this is all coming from. But the, the actual application of what comes next, I think, is what I'm most interested in. Um, as I guess this continues to be studied more, uh, to really kind of understand that underlying you know, what maybe is leading to you don't feel like you have brilliance or you don't like qualify for it, which again is something I've struggled with trying to under wrap my head around. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's at the same time, like it, so it's awesome psychological research because it just reveals kind of implicit bias that people have and tries to understand how do we change it possibly, or how do you mitigate it? Uh, but the hard part is you don't want a bunch of people that are highly educated feeling like they're not worthy of the job they have or they can't succeed in the field they're in um on a large scale this isn't limited to a university this is a very large scale so that's the the part that kind of makes me a bit sad here yeah me too i i want to bring up so you you mentioned you wondered what this is like in the tech field and uh we'll get to kind of the social thoughts we did ask you know all over our social sphere uh, earlier today, as soon as we knew what the story was going to be. Um, we have a couple thoughts there, but I did want to kind of recap. I actually reached out to a couple of the women in our lab and, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase this conversation, but there is a, uh, there's a member of our lab who feels uncomfortable applying to, or, or worried, I shouldn't say uncomfortable, worried about their aptitude when it comes to seeking jobs that, um, traditionally 
engineering background folks may apply to, right? So that difference between human factors and engineering uh, background, you know, especially even if they, you know, even if there's this, like, you fit the description, right, is, is kind of what I'm understanding. So um, there's this worry potentially about, uh, you know, not having an engineering background um, and having to fight harder to show your worth uh, because you're trained in human factors as opposed to uh, engineering, right? And so it's like, where does the worry for being underqualified or, uh, you know, basically, where does the question of qualifications end and where does the imposter syndrome question begin? Are they related? Do they tie in? Um, and then, how do you worry about, you know, performing once you get onto the job? I, Blake, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I feel like I have, to, I have to tread a little bit carefully here, but I'm probably not going to do it. it there, this is, this is probably a well-founded fear, right? Cause there is a, there's, there's a, I don't, I don't know the right word to use. There is tension between, human factors psychologist versus being a human factors engineer and that's in the same field so there's definitely tension between i'm gonna hire an engineer or am i gonna hire a psychologist for this job that's for better or worse that's reality so you do have to work very hard as a human factor psychologist from one person's perspective to prove your worth in an engineering field Um, i think there's a lot of ways to do that and it's, it does take a lot of effort on your part, um, you know, being good at interviewing, uh, having good references, that kind of stuff in your early career can be very, very helpful. But it, I would be surprised if it did not feel intimidating. One thing that I felt early on in my career, and again, Nick and I said this, we're both men, white men in a traditionally white man's field, I guess. But even in my early career, I was not respected as a psychologist when I when working with other engineers. Um, it took a long time, even having my first job, to really build rapport with un- other engineering leads or people that wrote code or any of that stuff. I mean, that's really probably what shaped the way I went about my career. But at the same time, you can't really let it get in your way, as easy as that is to say. Um, if it's something you want and feel like you would have a lot of impact in, but it's, it's definitely not an unfounded, um, you know, feeling to have, because like I said, there, there's existing tensions on top of the fact that, you know, you're new to a field. Um, so that's, that's, that's even harder to get over, I think, um, than, you know, just the study we're talking about here alone. Yeah, I agree. I do want to get into some of these other, um, thoughts we've we've been posting these social thoughts uh every thursday morning so you know as soon as we know what it is let us let us know your thoughts for the story of that night um we'd love to hear from you in the future we got a couple here i do want to get to uh Kristen's comment from chat uh basically saying that you know as college is becoming more necessary and competitive imposter syndrome is becoming more prevalent that's their observation uh, what do you think about that, Blake? Have you have you noticed that? Um, do you feel like we've seen an uptick in imposter syndrome questions on the "It Came From" segment as uh, college is becoming more and more necessary? I I'm not going to be able to equate it to the college side, but one thing I have seen a large struggle with with people that I work with through the boot camp that I teach for and ADP list as well is a lot of people have a hard time accepting that they're going to do something new, but being being aware that they're already doing the job, they just haven't gotten a job yet. So it, it is something I feel like I see all the time where people are super afraid to, you know, remove from LinkedIn that they're an aspiring UX designer and actually say they are a UX designer, for instance. Um, so I, I do find it's pretty prevalent in our culture in general. Um, and it, it's interesting to hear that as, as schools becoming a much more prevalent requirement for jobs or whatever it may be that it, it, that, um, Kristen's seeing it kind of appear a bit more across people, but we definitely talk a lot about it on the show. Definitely in the, it came from Reddit section. Cause like you mentioned, it's the first time we'd like seen a study on it. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, from your perspective, have you noticed more and more imposter syndrome, either in people you worked with or, you know, things that you do? Um, yes, I think there is, it's, uh, it's quite prevalent, you know, I, I, you get people to confide in you and, uh, you basically have them confess that they feel like they don't know what they're doing or get a gut check to make sure that they're not uh, crazy. Um, or, you know, kind of that reassurance that we all need from time to time that says, yeah, you're doing the right thing. You're, you're doing a great job. You, you know. So, you know, from from a mid-career professional's perspective, I would say uh, there's, you know, uh, directly involved in hiring process, um, involved with training and that type of thing. I think the, the thing that mid-career professionals or, or people that manage others can uh, do is to provide that encouragement, even if it's unsolicited, because I think especially when it comes to people who are more green, because I think it, it, it really does kind of reinforce that you're meant to be here. Um, you know, we chose you for a reason. And I think we say that like every time we talk about the imposter syndrome question on it came from is they chose you for a reason. It's okay. If you feel this way, know that it gets better, uh, you know, and kind of making sure that you as somebody who's managing them or working with them are actively doing your part to make sure that they feel more comfortable because as soon as they're up to speed and they feel like they're competent in their role, then, you know, you'll fly. That's, that's kind of my opinion there. But, um, I do want to get into some of these social thoughts. So, uh, we, we talked about Kristen's comment. This one's from Barry Kirby on Twitter. Um, you know, they're experiencing imposter syndrome too. Uh, like, you know, do they mean to pick me? What if I can't deliver? Um, they also say it's, it's fundamental that men are more likely to put themselves forward for a job or project on the off chance they'll win it. Whereas women tend to not, unless they're absolutely sure they can do it. I don't know how true that is. Um, but you know, I think that's the perception. And so even having that perception that men are go-getters and women are kind of like, uh, a sure thing, you know, less risky, risk-taking behaviors. I think that in itself says a lot about these stereotypes. Too. And I wonder if you know that's something that comes up in one of those, um, one of those uh, card sorting tasks as well. I do have another one here. They asked to remain anonymous. Um, they say, as a first-gen college student, this is from a, a, a woman here. So um, this is the perspective that we're looking here for. For me, as a first-gen college student, striving for a, a higher college education is is probably the most intimidating thing I've ever done even though I'm well within uh even though I'm doing well within my classes and helping professors with research I constantly feel like a fraud as if I don't know what I'm really talking about obviously I'm not expected to know everything but it's hard for me to be confident in my current skills so imposter syndrome sneaks up on me very easily uh and then you know there's also the um the worry about qualifications here uh I always question my qualifications when I look at job descriptions. I usually worry about how I'll end up performing once I get the job. This could be a mix of imposter syndrome and lack of experience in industry jobs. The only jobs I've had have been in fast food chains. So you can see that this is impacting women who are those early career professionals that are, uh, you know, just starting to get out in the field too. It's, it's kind of insane. Um, how, you know, this is a, there's a pretty, uh, pretty. What, what's the confirmation bias? <laughs> confirmation bias, right here. Um, so you know, I, I don't know. What do you, do you have any thoughts on that, Blake? Uh, not any great ones, man. <laughs> so one thing I thought that was interesting, based off of Kirby's uh, response, is something. And this, this is the entire thing for me. It, it really comes down to a lot of influences in your life. And kind of the the impacts they have on you. Because I don't know if it's true if most men will be risk-seeking or not. Or they're more likely to. But I'll tell you, the one thing that my old man has always said is you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Or if you don't buy the ticket, you'll never win the lottery. And I, I do that behavior and I have throughout my entire life. Just taking shots and hoping something works out. However, the part... So to 
pull back the curtain a little bit. When Nick and I were trying to figure out, like, what are we going to do for this show, I felt really kind of in a, in a rock and a hard place because I just didn't think that my opinion really was the right one for this particular show. And the reason is, is my entire life is shaped by really, from my perspective, absolutely brilliant women. And so I, I have a very hard time with this concept at all because I maybe it's just the life that I ended up living or whatever it may be, but I was influenced heavily by some of the most brilliant women and people I've ever met. I mean, the only reason I'm in Human Factors is because of my you know advisor or whatever you want to call her in graduate school or undergraduate school that for the first time out of all of the you know perspective uh, advisors or whatever it may be made me feel like I did belong in psychology and that I you know had stuff to contribute and without like her insights into my personality I never would have gone into human factors um, and I attribute I attribute a lot of my success in the field to her mentorship so it's it is hard for me to try and figure out like what what really can we provide here um, but I think from the imposter syndrome perspective, is that may never go away, but the biggest thing to, I guess, keep in the back of your mind is there's a reason you got to wherever you are, um, and it probably doesn't have anything to do with luck. So just take the things that you're afraid of or you're not sure you can do, like, one step at a time, and you'll likely find yourself in a place where if you look back, you'll not even believe how you got there. That's wow. really all the like, two cents I have. Wow. I can't even think of a better way to end this segment. So brilliant women everywhere. You can do it. Uh, we believe in you. And if you don't believe in yourself, reach out to us. We'll talk you down. Um, <laughs> how about that? <laughs> Perfect. You can do it. All right. Well, thank you to our patrons for choosing this uh, story this week. And thank you to our friends over at New York University for uh, the story. If you want to follow along, uh, join me on Office Hours on Mondays where I find these news stories. And we do post the links to all the original articles on our weekly roundups on our blog. You can also join us on our Slack or Discord for more discussion on these stories. We'd love to hear from you if you have any stories about imposter syndrome and how it's affecting your ability to either get a job or perform in a job. Let us know. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you as always to our patrons, especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running, and thank you all so much for your continued support. If you want to become a patron or a show sponsor, go check us out on Patreon, uh, Human Factors cast over there. Uh, there's a couple great things that we offer over there. I think they're great. Anyway, Human Factors Minute is uh, chugging along. I love that thing so much. I actually enjoy listening to them because we produce so many up front that like I'll I'll see them in my feed and I'll go, Oh yeah, we did that. That's right. What is that? <laughs> or or it's one that you've done, Blake, <laughs> or you know, I didn't write or something. <laughs> it comes up and I'm like Most of those for oh. me are like, What is that? Okay, cool. This yeah. is great. Let's see if I can figure out how to use this. <laughs> anyway, if that entices you, uh go check it out over there and consider supporting the show. That way, like I said, helps us keep the lights on and um allows us to do some really fun things. You know, if we get a show sponsor, we can actually go to uh, more conferences. We know conference coverage is a big, uh, a big favorite of all, all of our listeners. So anyway, uh, let's go ahead and switch gears and get into this next part of the show. We like to call it came from. It came from. That's right. It came from this week. It's all Reddit. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community's talking about. Uh, 
we got three this week, Blake, and I'm, I I think these are some really good questions here. They're all from the user Solid. experience subreddit, but those those questions are often applicable uh, to human factors as well. So let's get into them. Uh, this one here is how do you build UX or human factors awareness in your company? This is by Yafim V. Uh, Yafim V. I don't know. Hi all. I've been reading posts and various articles on the impact of UX research on companies. I noticed that there are very few articles on this subject from the eyes of the stakeholders, how they see UX research, what they think and feel about it. For proper disclosure, I come with a technological background, and most of my professional life I've been dealing with code and intrigued myself to solve complex technological problems rather than people's problems. I'm one of those who made unsubstantiated assumptions about users and then fought over them fiercely. It's too simple solution and not good enough for our users. Today... I see things a little differently, and I'd like to think that user experience research doesn't reach its full potential, and there is much more to go. We're a new startup trying to tackle this problem from the stakeholder's perspective. We build a platform for UX researchers to generate uh, and share video clips, insights from user interviews, um, basically to keep updated with personalized content that finds them um, as user experience researchers experts i'd love to hear your thoughts experiences and difficulties on ux awareness in your company blake how do you i mean have you ever worked in a company that had a lack of insight as to what ux research could do not only for the users but for the company and how did you yeah for sure so one interesting thing, and I think it still happens to some degree, but a couple of years ago, it was very common for human factors people to get hired or UX professionals to get hired. And it was more so like, hey, we know we need you, but don't know what to do. You just, you're going to have to, you know, tell us what you need to do and go do it. And rarely was that actually the case. So a lot of times you would get hired and try and, you know, implement a research process or a design process or start, you know, bringing in and doing kind of like impromptu UXR work. And sometimes stakeholders would be there and, you know, get involved and push back on a lot of things you may be trying to do. So it can be very tough, especially in like an early growth startup stage, which is something I have a lot of experience with in my prior life. Uh, but one thing that I think is really important is to definitely get your stakeholders involved in ways that you need to. That can be very, uh, very hard to do and very tricky. It does sound like, you know, you've got like clips and insights and all that kind of good stuff, which is great. Uh, but I'll tell you one thing. Most angel investors or CEO level people, they don't have very much time for that kind of stuff. They're not going to be watching a video. They're going to be going to you and asking you, hey, what are you doing? What impact are you having? Can you actually demonstrate that to me in the product we've built? And so one way that we kind of worked around this was actually having angel investors when they came in see some of the things that we were working on and actually watch you know, user interviews or having people do impromptu you know cognitive walkthroughs and things like that and seeing how we were uncovering issues because although it's great that it's great both for the team's perspective and you know potential you know um you know marketing material you can create for investment uh there's nothing like seeing things firsthand and seeing the impact it can have on a on a, a person like an operator or a user so that was one big thing for us for sure but it, it's always kind of a difficult balance because i was having this conversation with a colleague recently when you start doing that, you do run the risk of involving a, you know, an unobjective party, somebody who's either, you know, highly invested in the technology that you're working on and or an engineer who wants to interject like this is how you should be able to solve the problem or this is how we designed it. Uh, and you can, you know, get user data that ends up getting thrown out or interrupted and you don't get the full experience because somebody feels like they're attacking a design or attacking a product. So it's definitely a careful balance um, with stakeholders. Again, just to summarize, bring them into the process, but kind of set very clear boundaries for them, which can be very hard to do in the startup world with when you're bringing in people that have a lot of money and they're going to be investing in your product. But that's kind of the approach I would take. Now, Nick, you've had a lot of experience as a like a human factors researcher and a UXR. 
what kind of things have you done in the past to help get stakeholders up to speed with the value you bring? Yeah, this is okay. This is a difficult question to answer, but I'm going to try my best. And I hate the answer itself. So, um, here's what I'll say. I think your role as a user experience researcher or a human factors practitioner in an embedded team, uh, where you are working with a multidisciplinary team on something you're trying to basically you're the only person there that's into human factors or one of the few people there i think your job then becomes much harder if that work culture doesn't respect or know what you do because then you have to switch to sales and it's sales 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 internally you have to sell what you're doing internally and i hate that um people call it evangelizing sometimes uh about what you do and it's true right People often won't understand the impact that you have until you can show return on investment or, you know, the value that you bring to a product. And so a lot of it is over explaining. Uh, I find myself doing that, which is also why I'm on a podcast is because I over explain things a lot and talk a lot. And you have to in order to make other people in that company appreciate what you do. I think they have the right idea here. Um, There is kind of a set presentation that you should give to somebody uh, that, you know, is a stakeholder that wants to know about your significance on a a project um, that includes things like return on investment, right? You, You explain what you do and you explain what the outcome is. And once you can quantify that, once you can communicate that and quantify it, then they start to see, they go, oh, oh, you mean it took users X amount of time faster it took them they, they, they completed this task 30 percent faster because of the changes that you did that's hard to measure um you know oh user satisfaction it's not hard to measure i mean it's it's easy to gather right but it's it's uh it's one of those easy things to communicate that shows you wow user satisfaction went up after some of these ch- design changes um and went down when you didn't listen to me so, I, you know, there's there's things that you can do like that. And I think showing them the user's struggle on a usability study, show them like, you know, 30 seconds of them just struggling or cussing at the product or something like that is really powerful because then it's not you communicating that message. It's you saying, look, they are really struggling with this and I'm here to make that better. So, you know, I'm here to save your ass is basically what you're saying in that moment. Like, anyway. Take that as you will. That's my perspective. You're all about sales, especially in a in a, a company where there's a lack of awareness as to what UX or human factors does. All right, let's get into this next one here. Uh, this one's by Neurotic Buddha. Um, so <laughs> you ever feel like you're just waiting around? I'm working on a new internal dashboard, and I've conducted a bunch of user interviews, synthesized the research, made a bunch of notes, But my research has led me to a bit of an impasse where I'm going to need to continue to speak with a few folks in order to sort some things out. Basically, the research that I did invalidated some assumptions that myself and my team made beforehand, and now we're going to pivot the project in another direction. In the meantime, I'm not really sure what to do. I don't really have many other tasks at the moment, so I kind of feel like I'm just waiting around until I'm able to conduct this new round of interviews. Do any of you feel this way in in your role ever? I haven't done much real work in the last few days, and I'm feeling super guilty about it. Blake, have you ever experienced this where you're just kind of sitting around? Not particularly, and I think that's because of the way companies I've worked for are structured. Um, Typically having like, you know, four or five things always spinning for different projects. I have had lull times in the past, and I but this specific instance here where it's talking about we have assumptions that were invalidated. We need to pivot as a team. I think this is a really good time for some introspection. Because, um, of course, you, you're not an army of one, it sounds like. But as like a lead person in a UX role, it's a good time to think about, like, okay, the assumptions that we made. Where did those really come from? And where did we root them? And what could we have done differently to maybe either move towards a, a closer set of assumptions that would help us to have moved forward quickly or whatever it may be? Also, check out and think about some of the research questions that you have asked so far, because it sounds like if you need to do follow-ups, there may have been another way to approach the problem 
up front that could have given you more information or something you could have started with and already begin to pivot. But really, if I was in this position, I would be sitting kind of thinking and working with various teammates about what the pivot looks like and what that's actually going to mean for the next steps. So although like there may be no direct work that needs to be done, there's still plenty of like deep thinking you can be doing in between, you know, maybe your next meeting or the next set of round of interviews is like, okay, once we do the next step, what does everything else look like for the next three, six months um, in terms of what we've learned, where we need to go from here? That's kind of how I would approach it. Um, Otherwise, I would be looking to pick up a new skill if I really felt like I had extra time and I couldn't really work on problem solving. I'd be thinking about what, what, where are my lacking points as a UX researcher, designer, developer, whatever. Um, and can I, is there something that I could effectively work on at work that's going to benefit my projects or my professional growth? Um, but Nick, for you, have you ever gotten this feeling of like, I'm just hanging around. I'm not sure what to do. Oh yeah. All the time. There's, there's, uh, there's plenty of moments where, um, I guess, I guess hanging around is, is a difficult one to answer because yes, there are times where I cannot continue with my work until I get answers from others. However, I'm always occupying that time with something. Uh, you know, it's, it's like if I truly am at an impasse and I can't go forward without consulting a stakeholder or a user group or something like that to make improvements, then it's, you know, okay, well, I'll switch over to a roadmap. What's next? Is there anything that I can work on that's coming down the pipeline? I know I'll need to do like, uh, you know, developing a, a survey or, um, you know, anything like that, or potentially drafting up some design changes or, uh, you know, and, and like you said, Blake, even enriching your own, uh, experience by doing some extracurricular, uh, class or something to that degree so it's it's always been occupied by other things i think that's kind of the way i'm reading this is i'm i'm stuck i don't know what to do and i don't know how to fill my time um and i think a lot of people experience that there there are certainly companies where you are go 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 all the time and you there's no downtime there are other companies where you have a ton of downtime and uh it's just a matter of how you manage that downtime that i think kind of sets you apart from other things there's always the um the approach of like hey i have really nothing on my plate right now this is a slippery slope i would not recommend doing this hey i got nothing on my plate is there anything that you think i can work on because then you'll you're you know assigning yourself basically more work that you might not necessarily be um proficient in let's say that uh but you know, if you're if you're really struggling, I guess you could always ask your boss and be like, "Hey, can I work on this thing?" Or you know, it usually helps to come with a uh, with a idea in mind for those. Um, don't know how else else to answer that question. All right, let's get into this last one here. Um, so, one's how to write portfolio pieces or case studies from immature, stifling UX projects. This is from Bathe Styles. All these names are great tonight. Uh, so, <laughs> you have. Uh, basically, uh, the, the current UX process I follow is shut up and do what the business says to do because our UX organization is immature. I can't do user research and I don't know how to spin this into something I can put on a portfolio. I work in a rather stifling environment where I'm pretty much just told what to build by the business, uh, sorry, by the research I would hang on. Sorry. I told what to build by the business with very little of my own input We aren't given access to users, so I can't do the research I would normally do to determine how I should design my solutions. So what usually ends up happening is the business gives me requirements that are usually incomplete, and then they just tell me how to change my designs over and over until they're happy. I want to find a better job in a company with more mature UX organization, but I can't really start job hunting until I build up my portfolio. But I'm also struggling to figure out what to write about since portfolios are all about showcasing the decision-making process and the process I'm sure forced to follow, i.e. do what the business says to do, isn't exactly impressive. thought about writing how, how doing what the business tells you and all the compromises I've had to make is building the foundation of a relationship between UX and the business. 
and how nurturing this relationship can lead to the business trusting UX to do more than just be wireframe monkeys. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a stretch, though. Plus, writing about my experience working in an immature UX org feels like airing out my company's dirty laundry. I'd appreciate any advice on this. Thank you. Blake, how do you approach projects or pro- uh, problems where you can't necessarily... How do you how do you approach portfolios where you can't talk about the projects that you work on for one reason or another? Yeah, this is a hard one. So I would encourage you to, f- to just write about it first because that's the biggest that's the biggest thing that probably is in your way is just doing the first write-up of the portfolio piece, whatever it may be, because you've obviously done work. Maybe you can't showcase all of it, but you can talk about the constraints and the stakeholders and how you've navigated it. And I think you're in an interesting position too, because if it's a, a company that has that's newer to UX, awesome. Talk about the things that you have tried to or you would like to have implemented um, and kind of your rationale behind them, whether it's putting a design process or a research process in place. Um, and you can weave that into like the constraints of the company's, you know, allowance of the culture and that kind of stuff. There's plenty of ways to talk about your thought process and your desires for what you would have liked to have done. And then the reality of what happened when you're inside of a, a company that maybe has like limited scope, you don't have to put it in a negative light, right? You don't have to say like, well, the, the company was really stifling. Well, you can also say that there was just a limited limited access to users due to the state of the product. There was, I don't know, there's there's X, Y, and Z things you can put in that place to give it a bit more of a positive spin. But something I've seen definitely is a trend, at least across really popular UX YouTubers, is talking about case studies that don't necessarily pan out and why they didn't and how you had to pivot decision-making to get to the next phase or what you did to overcome the challenges. Because one one thing is, is that can really help you in the real world when you get to another job, right, that still has challenges, but now you can actually overcome them. Uh, but also it kind of could provide you a very compelling story when you're in an interview. So in this case, I would just really suggest take the time, try and figure out like what you can write about. What was the ideal UX process you wanted to implement, the steps you took to try and do that, and then the ultimate maybe outcome of the things that ended up happening within the company without throwing them under the bus because there's no reason to do that, even if it's a bad experience. Yeah. Can I can I let you in on a little secret, Blake? Um, this might be giving away too much secret sauce for me, but... Don't do it. No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. This is this is my my cheat sheet. Oh my so for me, if I'm looking to to bring somebody on board, right? I'm not looking for what have you done in the past in terms of like the bread and butter stuff. Have you done user testing? Have you? I don't care. I can train you to do that on the job. What I'm looking for, you know, as long as you have knowledge of what the intended use is for, and you can demonstrate that knowledge to me that's fine. Or you can speak the same language. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for, can you speak the same language? And then what I'm also looking for is how do you navigate situations where you're not in control or where you don't have the kind of um, control that you wish you had? And how you navigate those situations is much more important to me than whether or not you're able to access users uh, and and do the, the things that you're trying to do. So I think in this case... What you said, Blake, is exactly right. That's exactly what I'd be looking for is, okay, so I was working in an environment where X, Y, and Z were the constraints. Label those constraints because if you know what your constraints are, that helps communicate to other people who are not involved with that process as to what you were working with, right? You know, limited access to users, uh, limited uh, back and forth on designs, right? Like you, you really had to work hard in this environment to even poke through and the fact that you didn't give up would be something that I would look for too, right? The, you know, so, so that's all, uh, that's kind of the secret sauce for me is what I'm looking for when I bring people on board is not have you done the things, especially if you're early career, that doesn't matter to me. I can train you to do those, you know, people can learn on the job and you know, it's, it's an investment for the company. If you can, uh, figure out, you know, what skills people need and build those people up. And as long as they know what they're talking about and are competent and can problem solve effectively, I think those are more important traits than anything else. 
So anyway, that's just gave you away my secret there, Blake. So there we go. Secret sauce from Nick. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Any other closing thoughts on any of those Reddit stories? I just, uh, this last one is interesting and I wish I could give more detail, but I just can't, but it's funny how well you're, constrained environment that you're working in will translate to talking to other companies that are having to work under those constraints, but have existing processes and believe in the things you do. Uh, Because if you can work under the really hard constraints and figure out how to make something work or make something, you know, end up being okay, then you're probably going to have even more success if you're in a place where they really do value what you do. And now you're going to work under some constraints, but you're going to have a lot more access or possibility for impact. Uh, so you, it's all about spinning and telling the story. That's about it. About the end of that one. Yep. If you, if you can, if you can survive in a nightmare environment, you can thrive in a dream environment. So, all right, uh, let's get into this last part of the show we like to call One More Thing. There's no fancy graphics or anything. It's just where Blake and I talk about One More Thing. Uh, Blake, what's going on with you, man? It's been a, We didn't do it last week, so what's going on with you, man? Oh, we didn't do it last week. Okay. I thought thought this was this felt weird. Um, me. Man, so this is something I did want to talk about, so I'm glad that we actually did this this week. So one thing I've really been struggling with, and this has nothing to do with human factors, so sorry, everybody, uh, but... One thing I've really struggled with throughout the the pandemic and th- and whatever life in general right now, uh, it's just getting excited about doing things, and I've had a really hard time about it. Um, and one of those things that I have to consistently do for my my own mental health is exercise. Like I've really just had the struggling time to want to do the programming I'm doing and all this other stuff, and it's it's impacted my mood my you know, the way I interact with people, probably the way I do this podcast. Uh, but there is like a really interesting effect that's happened recently by the other day, somebody suggested a different kind of training. And I was like, ah, I don't really know if I, if I want to do that. Sounds like it's a lot harder than what I'm doing now, but the power of just sucking it up and doing something new has been really transformative for me over the past week or two, which has been just generally life stressful. So I don't know if, if if anybody's out there considering doing anything new or like picking up a new skill, trying whatever, I would just encourage you to do it, especially if you feel like you, you kind of need a new hobby or something to kind of like get you excited about the day because those like little nuanced, small changes can just have a, a massive impact on how you feel, how you interact with other people and just your day to day. Great, Blake. Yeah, that's it. I love that message. Just do it. Shia LaBeouf Just it. do it. <laughs> or or, or uh, Palpatine it, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm going to do a little something different for my one more thing. So uh, for some of you who have been following along, you know that I have built kind of a pod for the pod uh, around uh, my workspace. And so I'm going to do a little show and tell here on the podcast Uh, And so I will try to describe for people who are watching. I now have a camera view up of the inside of my pod. You're getting a POV perspective here. I built a frame. I've built a little frame around uh, around the edge here. Shout out to Lowe's. Yeah, shout out to Lowe's uh, for all the lumber here. Uh, You can see I have Audacity up there. Uh, I'm not going to pan down because my desk is a mess, but you can see that uh, I actually have a frame around this entire thing. And you can kind of see um, that... uh, you know the uh, from from the perspective of the camera that I was just on here. Let me switch back. You know, I, I have a working pod where you can see it's like a it's a space. Now it's it's not finished, but this is just my pod pod update, if you will. Uh, so that that's really all I have. It's just an update. I have a frame. I have a I have a little space. It's very confined, and I love it. I think I've mentioned on the show before that I I love these confined spaces. That's how I work best. Um, Anyway, soon there's going to be more. I think paneling is going to go up in a door right here uh, so the little one can't come in. Anyway, that's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the news story this week. We'd really love to hear from all of you about whether or not imposter syndrome has impacted your life directly. You can reach out to us on Slack or Discord. Get to us on any of our social channels. Visit our official website. Sign up for our newsletter. Stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, leave us a five-star review. That's free for you to do. 
uh, and helps other people find the show. Tell your friends about us. That's another reason uh, or another way that you can help the show. Uh, word of mouth is really powerful. Or if you have money and want to support us that way, you can consider supporting us on Patreon. We won't complain. As always, links to all of our socials and website are in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnsdorf, another white dude, for hanging out with me on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about imposter syndrome or any of the other things that we talked about? You guys can always reach me anywhere on social media at Don't Panic UX, and I'm also in the Slack and Discord uh, at Blake for Human Factors Cast. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch on Mondays at 4 Pacific for Office Hours and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.